Welcome, good morning, and, and welcome to Chillicothe Bible Church. I'm glad that all of you are here uh, on, this cold, on these cold winter days. Sometimes it's easy to just bury yourself in a blanket and uh, turn on the fire if you have one of those, or build one if you don't, um, or at least dream about it if you're in neither of those categories. Um, and to just kind of uh, let life go by until the weather gets nice again. But I'm glad that you all braved the cold and the snow and, uh, and came out this morning to worship God. Uh, we're going to be picking up this morning in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're continuing our study through there. Uh, we're, we're all the way into the second half of chapter 1. So if you haven't, uh, haven't, haven't, haven't uh, been here last week, then you haven't missed a whole lot yet. Uh, but this week we're going to be looking at Jesus and some of his miracles and his demonstration of power. And, and this is a, a really important section of the Gospel of Mark because one of the things that Mark is trying to do for us all through the book is to tell us who Jesus is. He, he tells us who he thinks Jesus is in the very first verse. He says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Jesus the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God. Anybody unclear about what Mark thinks? No, but he's going to give you some backup evidence, 16 chapters worth, that Jesus did fulfill every Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah who was to come, and in his demonstrations of power and in his teaching, he was consistent with who the Messiah was to be, and that, in fact, he's not just the son of David, although he is the son of David. He is the greater son of David, who is, in fact, the son of God. And we're going to see in some of the things that Jesus does that you're left with the inescapable conclusion that this man is exactly who he claims to be, that he's the Messiah, the son of God. Uh, you can find out a lot about somebody by watching what it is that they do or observing what it is that they do. Uh, one of the first things that men always ask one another after they meet each other, if you're around men at all, uh, we, they do this. Hi, my name is Joe. Hi, my name is Bill or Bob or Ben or whatever, right? And, and the next question out of the mouth after that is this. What do you do? And we want to know if we're dealing with an engineer uh, or a, an attorney or a transmission specialist, or a military guy, or whatever, because it tells us something significant about one another before we even really get the conversation started, right? How many of you have been around somebody who restores classic cars? Been around those people? Okay. Now, seriously, most of us are like me, I think, or at least some, some variety of, of this, where we think... Some combination of bird stuff, uh, dust, and road grime protects just as well as wax. And, <laughs> and if the car is a little bit dirty, big deal, okay? But somebody who restores classic cars, I mean, you can eat off their engine, okay? My engine, you might get tomain, all right? <laughs> but, but, you know, you open the hood and it's this glistening, gleaming thing, right? And you, see, and you see that paint job, and it is literally, there is not a speck of dust on this thing. 
And you know some things about the kind of person who does that. You know that they are someone who has a preference for order and is, and is particular. Uh, some might say retentive, but particular at a very minimum, right? They're very ordered, very organized, very... Um, uh, they have a preference for fine detail, right? And you look at that and you go, wow, that is one sharp car. The guy who owns that must really devote a lot of time to this. And you know, you know some things about the person just by observing the, the product that they produce, right? You go, wow, look at that, okay? Um, and the same thing is true with Jesus. Mark is going to show us some things that Jesus does in order to teach us who Jesus is, okay? So if you've got your Bible, um, we're in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 21. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter, okay? They went to Capernaum, when the, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. People were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news, and as a result... Jesus could no longer enter town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now in the first section here of this, uh, verses 21 to 20, 28, you see Jesus' power over demons, over the demonic realm. 
Uh, and this is something that Mark is going to give us examples of over and over and over through his gospel, Jesus' power over demons. And, and I don't know, as you sit here this morning, what your particular beliefs are uh, regarding the demonic realm, but the Bible is pretty clear on this. The Bible is clear that there really are spiritual forces of evil that exist in the world, uh, that it refers to as demons or as fallen angels, uh, that they really do exist, and they really do indwell and control people at various times. Uh, in fact, uh, some people, why, you know, I was having a conversation with a guy the other day, and he said, well, how come, you know, when you see demon possession, it always seems to be, you know, somewhere other than in the West? Uh, you know, you don't see it that commonly here in the U.S. You don't see it that much in Europe. Uh, how come you think, why do you think that is? I think the, the answer to that is relatively complicated, but but there's a couple of answers, really. One is that in places where demons are actively worshipped, uh, demon possession is more common. And so you see it more commonly in places where that occurs. The other thing I would say on that is this, is that uh, Satan and his demons, I believe, are very adaptable, and and they're kind of like a giant multinational company, you know, that has branches everywhere, and they don't care what product you're buying as long as you're buying, right? And so you might not have a, a bunch of takers for a product called Satan Incorporated, bow down to a demon, uh, here in the West, right? You do have some people who do that. But they're not the, they're, it's not a majority of people. In certain other places, you do have that. Where people pray to the rain god or the storm god or the, uh, the god of the trees or of the rocks or of diseases or whatever. And they pray to this deity not knowing or maybe even knowing that it is a demon that's behind that idol that they bow down to. And so in those places, that kind of activity is more common here in the west uh satan has a different set of tricks right he has things like uh, consumerism that he can get people wrapped up in and and it's just as much of an idol with just as much of a demon behind it but no one's bowing down to you know the chase bank gold card right at least not most of us <laughs> uh, aren't doing that right but it doesn't matter which which poison you drink as long as it's poisonous right as far as he's concerned he doesn't care um but in jesus day you see people uh and and even today you see people who are demon possessed uh and i don't think like there are some people who who say well no you know this is just ancient first century uh a.d uh, lingo to talk about some serious mental problems like multiple personality disorder or schizophrenia or something like that. So they're not actually demon-possessed. No, the Bible says they're demon-possessed. And the Bible distinguishes between people who are ill and people who are controlled by evil. And this this person is demon-possessed. Um, and here's the point of this passage. And that's a lot of background, but here's the point. That Jesus, whenever there's an encounter between Jesus and the demonic realm against the spiritual forces of evil at work in the world, Jesus always, always, always triumphs. Always. Why? Because he's God. That's why. 
Uh, if you look at this a little closer, Jesus is with his first disciples, and they're in a village called Capernaum. I found out this week that Capernaum is actually a compound word that's, that's two Greek words, kephar nahum, okay? the village of Nahum. Nahum is the Old Testament prophet uh, who wrote the, the minor prophet uh, book that, named, that bears his name. They're in the village of Nahum. And, um, and they, uh, they go there because that's where Peter lives. Peter and Andrew are there um, as part of Jesus' first disciples, along with James and John. And the four of them go back to Capernaum, and the Sabbath comes. And so Jesus goes to the synagogue. Now, this in itself is not unusual. Jesus went to the synagogue a lot. Um, but the fact that he's teaching indicates that he has gained something of a reputation as being a qualified teacher. Because you wouldn't ordinarily be invited to speak uh, at a synagogue that you're not from. Remember, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, unless you're a person of some reputation. And so Jesus walks in, and he's, he's immediately invited to, to start teaching, and he does. And his teaching is very interesting. Uh, because it says, you know, people were amazed because he taught as one who had authority, uh, not as their teachers of the law. And maybe that confuses you, but if you read the Talmud, which is the, the Jewish, the record of the Jewish tradition of the rabbis, you can still buy a copy. It's multi-volume and very lengthy. Um, but what you read is this back and forth. You know, you have an issue presented, and then what do the rabbis say? And you'll get this. Well, Rabbi Hillel says, do thus and so. Rabbi Shammai says, do thus and so. And you get into citing these various authorities. Jesus doesn't say, well, Rabbi Hillel says, Rabbi Shammai says, Rabbi so-and-so says, Rabbi Hezekiah says. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I say to you. Or let me give you a little Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, Thou shalt not murder, but I say to you. He's teaching as one who possesses in himself inherent authority. And so people are like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's some carpenter's kid with a shady personal background out of Nazareth. And here he's saying, but I say to you, like he's one of the leading rabbis that's ever been. And then an interesting thing happens. This man stands up who's demon-possessed, and the demon starts to talk through the man and says, what do you want with us? Meaning apparently there's more than one residing within this fellow. Uh Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, Jesus does not want a demon's character witness. <laughs> okay? I mean, it's like having Al Capone stand up for you at trial. Uh, he's a good guy, I swear. <laughs> you know, uh, Jesus does not want a demon's character witness, so he says, shut up. Be quiet. Come out of him. And immediately, the demon leaves. And Jesus does this for two reasons. Number one, he does this to show uh, compassion on this man. Because being afflicted by a demon is not a good thing. 
Uh, this is not something that uh, you know should be on your bucket list before you go out. Okay, this is a terrible, horrible affliction to be controlled by something this evil. And so he shows compassion on this man. But the other thing that he is doing is he is backing up his claim to authority. And people take notice. See what they say? What is this? A new teaching that has authority. Even the evil spirits obey him. Because notice what Jesus does. You know, there were exorcists that were around in Jesus' day, and a lot of them, you know, they had these magic spells and stuff they would go through and all this incantation and mumbo-jumbo and abracadabra that they would say, right? And Jesus doesn't do any of that gyration. He just says, you, out of that man. And the thing comes out. And people are impressed. I mean, this is impressive stuff, right? It's the Sabbath, remember? And so people have to celebrate the Sabbath. They're, they're there to worship. After this happens, uh, the word kind of goes around town. I mean, if you had seen this, would you be impressed? I'd be impressed. Uh, word goes around town. Capernaum's a, a city of about 10,000 people at this time. And word gets around. And they say, this guy can heal people. I mean, right now, heal people. When they they leave the synagogue and they go to uh, Simon Peter's house and his mother-in-law is there sick. And and sick, bad enough, this is not the sniffles. She has a fever. Uh, At this time, you know, this is not, uh, you know, like I got to do this week where you can go down to the doctor, get some antibiotic, and, you know, in a few days or a week, you know, feel pretty much well. Fever is a dangerous thing in this day. Uh, you got no way to control it. There's no ibuprofen to bring it down. Um, you can get, you can die from this. And notice what Jesus does. He he doesn't. There's no. There's no. Like I say, there's no magic word that gets said or anything. He just walks over, takes the woman by the hand, and she's immediately healed. And healed. Not just you know. Not just. Oh boy, I'm glad I got the antibiotic in my system. I feel a little better today. But she's healed to a point of she's getting up and around and, you know, uh, boys, glad you're here. It's time to eat. And she's, she's healed. And then right after this, of course, they wait until the sun goes down so it's the next day. Because under the Jewish calendar, uh, the day went from sunset the previous evening till sunset that next day. And so the Sabbath ends at sunset. And people can travel again. And so once they are free to travel again, they get all the sick people they can find and take them to Jesus. And Jesus is healing people right and left. And there's lots of demons that are possessing people, and all of a sudden they're leaving. People are getting cleansed. And this goes on apparently for a while. It says that everybody in town came out to see him. I don't know that that's a literally true statement. I mean, it's probably uh, uh, accurate in the sense that there were probably several hundred people that did come to get cleansed or get healed uh, by Jesus. And this goes on, I'm guessing, into the night for several hours. But the next morning, what do you see Jesus doing? The next morning, 
Jesus is up before dark, I mean, before daylight, while it's still dark. Jesus get, gets up, he leaves the house, and he goes off to find a, a solitary place, some place where nobody's around to find him, so that he can have some time with his father to pray. And I think that's significant. Um, because here Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. He's, he's experiencing phenomenal success. There's no one who's opposing him yet. And at precisely those times, it's awfully easy to just sit back and enjoy the ride. Right? When life is going good, you know, when the cotton is tall, mama's rich and daddy's good looking. Right? Um, it's easy to forget about God. I mean, most of us, if, you, if we're in crisis, I mean, our prayer life gets shored up in a hurry, right? Uh, I mean, if we haven't prayed in like six months, you know, uh, just have something bad happen to somebody that we know, and then we're like this, oh God, I know it's been a while, however, and we're off to the races, right? Jesus is at the height of his ministry success. And right here, he's going to the Father while it's still dark and praying by himself. And notice what happens next. This is interesting, I think. This is really, in fact, fascinating to me. The disciples come. They finally find him. Oh, we tracked him down. Okay. And they say to him, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. And look what he says. You can write a little, you can write a little C in there with a line through it for contrast okay look what he says let's go somewhere else somewhere else huh excuse me you're having this great success right here there's 10,000 people in this town that they'd minister to jesus and and they're all looking for you and man they you know everybody knows your name and wants to see you let's go somewhere else into the nearby villages, because I want to preach there also. Because this is why I have come. In other words, guys, I didn't come to be the most famous uh, prophet in Capernaum. He's looking for wider circles always for his ministry. So that the maximum number of people have an opportunity to meet him and see him and hear him. And have life. And he's looking for wider circles of ministry. And so he goes off throughout all the villages in Galilee. Teaching in the synagogues and driving out demons and healing people. And then this, this last little story right here at the end is fascinating to me. This man has leprosy. Now, leprosy is a, is a bad, nasty gross disease it wasn't until the end of the 20th century that we learned how to cure it and even then you can't reverse a lot of the effects a lot of times you can but you can cure it but it's a multi-drug therapy i found out that takes over 12 months of taking this medication every day to get rid of this disease here comes this man and by the way 
leprosy, in, in, if you were an Israelite, leprosy was a, was a very nasty disease because what it meant was that you were not allowed to enter the temple and worship. There were certain conditions that you could have and still be acceptable before God. But leprosy was one that cuts you off from your relationship with God. You were not allowed to go into the temple and worship at all if you had leprosy. In fact, you were to live outside of town, away from everybody, and when anybody approached you, you were to say, unclean, unclean. Because to touch them, to touch a leper, was to become ceremonially unclean yourself and to be unable to go and worship God yourself until you'd been cleansed by the priest. So this is a bad disease. And a man comes to Jesus and he says, falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Notice what Jesus does. He reaches out and he touches this leper. Risky thing. Because a Jew never did anything that would make themselves excuse me, never did anything that would make them ceremonially unclean and unable to go to worship. He reaches out and touches this man and says, I'm willing, be clean. And the man is healed. Did Jesus become ceremonially unclean? I don't think so, because the leper got healed in the instant that Jesus touches him. Now, compare our healing modern day, you know, 12 months, multiple drugs. Got to take them every day for a year to get healed of this thing. And even then, you don't reverse the effects. (coughs) Excuse me. To now Jesus says, be clean. The guy is healed. Now, let me tell you how significant this was. There are only three instances of people in the Old Testament that have leprosy that get healed. Three instances. There's Moses. You know, Moses, when he's standing at the burning bush, uh, God gives him two signs. He says, cast your, or actually three. He says, cast your, uh, your staff down, it will become a snake. He does that one before Pharaoh. Um Touch the water with your staff, it'll turn to blood. He does that one before Pharaoh. That becomes the first plague uh, on the Nile River. There's another one that Moses uh, does before God, but does not do, or at least is not recorded that he does before Pharaoh. And that's this. He says, stick your hand into your cloak and pull it out. And his hand has leprosy. He says, now stick it back in and pull it out. And he's cleansed. That's one. Second one, Aaron and Miriam lead a rebellion against Moses at one point. And God calls the three of them, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, to the tabernacle to stand before him. And they go in and they talk to the Lord. And when they come out, Miriam has leprosy. And Moses pleads for her that she would be healed. And then she is, seven days later. Okay, third example. Um, under the ministry of Elisha, there's a Syrian general, an Aramean named Naaman, who comes 
to see Elisha, the prophet. And he has leprosy. And he's heard from his Hebrew slave that if he, he, if he would go see Elisha, that he could get healed. And so he does. And Elisha tells him, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. And you'll be healed. And he says, oh, come on. You know, the rivers in, the rivers in Damascus are better. And his servant finally convinces him, you know, if, if the man of God had asked you to do some ridiculously complex thing, wouldn't you do it? Well, yeah. Well, why don't you go and wash in the river and see what happens? And Naaman gets healed. But in each case, it's God who heals the person of leprosy. It's not Elisha, not Moses. It's God who heals. And so the Jews held that only God could heal someone of leprosy. So what's, what happens here is incredibly significant. This is regarded, in fact, by the Jews as one of the messianic miracles. There were three of them. This is the first one. Another one is the healing of a person born blind. That the Messiah would be able to do because he was from God. And Jesus tells the man, don't go blab, go to the priests. Show yourself to the priests and offer a sacrifice. Why? As a testimony to them. Going and offering the sacrifice. Because this sacrifice that you offered as a person who had been healed of leprosy did two things. Number one, before you could offer it, you had to be examined by the priest in total. You had to disrobe before the priest and show that there's no leprosy on your skin. Now that's a little uncomfortable, but you had to prove that God had healed you. And then, and then, uh, so then the priest would certify that you were now able to go before God and worship. And then you offered sacrifice as a way of doing two things, thanking God for healing you, and number two, reinitiating your relationship with God, which was through sacrifice. And you'd been cut off before, now you're restored. And the other thing that happened was this, that since no one had ever been healed of leprosy, apart from Naaman, Moses, and Miriam, the, the Jews had a tradition written into their uh, rabbinic tradition that anybody who got healed, if that ever happened, that immediately they were to send a delegation of priests to investigate who did the healing. Because, again, they held that this was something only God could do. And that God's messenger, the Messiah, would also be able to do it. So what does this point to? That Jesus is the Messiah. He says, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, the guy doesn't do that. He goes and blabs to everybody. And never apparently offers the sacrifice he was supposed to. And because of that, Jesus is, is mobbed by people, as you might imagine. But the point of Jesus healing this guy was not just for his healing, although it's, it's that, certainly, but also to show to the priesthood, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who was to come. <coughs> Excuse me. Um... Now, we're running short on time, so I want to bring this, 
I want to land this sucker, okay? Uh, and, and talk just briefly about, uh, about Jesus and you, okay? Uh, three things. Number one, Jesus' preaching had power. He had authority. He has inherent authority, not borrowed authority, authority in himself. Does Jesus, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus have authority in your life? His teaching has authority inherently. But does it have authority in your life? Or are there some areas that you will let Jesus rule over and other areas that you do not? Be amazed how common that is among people who claim to be followers of Jesus. That we let Jesus have one through five on our list of things that we do in our life, but not six through ten. Because I don't really want to submit to what Jesus has to say on that. Does Jesus have authority over your life? Secondly, are you seeking the Father daily? Every day. You know, the Bible says pray without ceasing. Most of us, we kind of go, man, I can't even begin to approach that. But how about every day? When Jesus at the height of his ministry success, as things are just building and people are getting healed and nobody hates him yet, even then, he's before God, seeking God's will for his life. Are you doing that? Because I submit to you that if Jesus needs to pray, I need to pray. Amen? Okay. Last thing. Are you looking for, are you always looking like Jesus was for wider opportunities for ministry? Or are you content to celebrate past success and current ministry? It becomes very easy over time in your Christian life to have periods of of your life that are very much devoted to ministry and then to get occupied with other things and to kind of go, well, you know, I've been there, I've done that. You know, back when I was in YFC or when I was in campus life or when I was serving with Awana or when I was, you know, leading mops or when I was teaching Sunday school or when I was... Uh, involved in women's ministry or or discipling men or back when I used to whatever or you know currently I'm doing xyz and but the thing is is that every day you're not dead is an opportunity to serve the Lord right and we ought always as we especially as we get older and more mature in the Lord hopefully be looking for wider opportunities to serve him and to bring him glory because that's the purpose of life. I don't know if you knew that, but the purpose of life is not the continuance of your life. The purpose of life is to bring God glory through your life. So let's pray.